I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. It's a very complicated, fine line. They're using comedy to scratch some psychological itch that they have. Half the drawings feel like they've been drawn on a bar napkin. The next chapter. CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. Stand Up Ali is my bio handle in all kinds of places, including that place that used to be known as Twitter. The stand-up part is because I've been doing it for over 15 years. I've toured the country and logged many road hours. And so there was an aha moment of recognition when Brent Butt brought me back into that world in his new novel, Huge. It was huge, but that is also the name of the novel. Life on the comedy circuit is the vivid backdrop to Brent's suspenseful debut novel. And Brent himself is a stand-up comedian and a very funny man, so he knows of what he writes And he opens the program today. In a half hour, Eva Crocker will be here with her novel, Back in the Land of the Living. It's about a young millennial woman navigating life and love in her adopted city of Montreal. And Dimitri Nasrallah recommends two graphic memoirs that feature Maritimers going down the road. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Over the years, Brent Butt and I have shared the stage. We've both been on the comedy festival circuit. And the last time he and I spoke about a year ago, he interviewed me in Vancouver about my book. I'm delighted to turn the tables today to talk with him about his new book, Huge. It's a thriller set in the world of stand-up comics, a world Brent knows from experience. He's into his fifth decade as a stand-up comedian. We also know him from his very successful sitcom, Corner Gas. Huge is set in 1994, and three stand-up comedians head out on a tour in rural Canada. It's both an insider's look at this world and a twisty page-turner that turns very dark. Brent Butt, the author of Huge, joins me now from the Vancouver studio. Hello. Welcome to the next chapter, Brent. Hello. Lovely to talk to you once again. Once again. I mean, uh, you know, I tried to talk to you about your book last year. I was immediately excited, and you, you wouldn't allow it, Brent. You put your hand up. And I finally have my revenge, so to speak, which is... Well, you know, we were there to talk about your book, yes. and I wasn't going to, to tilt the spotlight away from your book. It, it deserved much spotlight. I appreciate it today. The tilt is fully in place. It'd be funny if I still wouldn't talk I, about my book. That'd be so funny. I would be... <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'm not comfortable with this. Brent the derailer butt. That would, that would be your <laughs> moniker from today forward. I'm still not comfortable. No, no. Now you, you got to sit in it. You got to love this. You spent many years as a comedian, actor, and screenwriter. Was there always a thriller writer in there screaming to be let out? Well, I always knew that I was going to at least attempt to write a novel. Hmm. Um, when I was very young, I made a list of things that I want to write, that I wanted to write in my life at sort of a professional capacity. And I've been fortunate. I've been able to do 
You know, almost all of them. There's only one left. But novel was the second to last thing on that list. And so I knew I was going to try it at least. And the idea that I had that had been percolating for some years was sort of a dark psychological thriller. And that's what I like to read as well. So I think it was sort of natural that the the first book that I came out with isn't a comedy, but rather a, a dark and somewhat violent thriller. Yeah, I mean, I was quite surprised about that when you told me about the the theme. But it's funny because I've lived a lot of the life that you described. I, I did. I haven't lived the violence, thankfully, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed uh, reading about the border issues of the of the comedians. That's something that's close to Ali Hassan's heart, certainly. And then, you know, it's interesting, these long car rides that you describe on, on the road, on the comedy circuit, I never considered that that would be such great content for a thriller. But I remember going across a, a number of provinces with a, with a headliner who would play his own CD in his car and then talk what? about his jokes and like dissect them. Like a stand-up them. CD. Yeah. Oh, we, that's so we brutal. had to listen to him talking about him for the whole... And um, as I think about it now... That was psychological violence, right? That was at least a hostage <laughs> yeah. situation. So you, I, it's amazing that you saw this and saw this world. I, I lived this world and I never considered it would be this uh, incredible fodder for, for, for this book. So when did you realize that the comedy world and, and particularly this sort of smaller town circuit would be a great place to, to set a thriller? Well, the, the basic premise that I had right from the get-go I, I thought was going to be or could potentially be interesting. Just the notion of, you know, three comedians on the road, one of whom has a tremendous capacity for violence. Because a lot of comedians have been there where you, you get booked with somebody, you don't know, it's like some guy's coming through from Montana, right? And mm. they're like, you'll meet him in Edmonton and you'll do three weeks on the road with this person. And two hours into it, you realize, oh man, this guy is not wired upright. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you're driving across weeks northern Manitoba <laughs> yeah. and you're like, wow, there's a lot of places to hide my body out here if this goes sideways. <laughs> so, th so that sort of was the initial concept of just being on the road with somebody that you suspect could get violent quickly. So when I sat down to write it, I didn't structure too much the story. I, you know, I kind of had my plot points that I wanted to lead to, but I, I just started writing and, you know, sort of tell the story to myself. And that involved just a lot of being on the road, like a stand-up. And I didn't know how interesting it would be. But one of the nice things, the very gratifying things that I've heard from people who, you know, people who read the very first draft of the book even and, and threw out multiple iterations of the book one of the, thing, the things they keep saying is, I really learned a lot about stand-up and what it's like mm. to be a stand-up on the road. And, and I kind of wanted to plant that seed with people just to peel the curtain back a little bit and show them how, just exactly how unglamorous life on the road is. You nailed it. You really did. So you, you center the book on these three characters. Two are you know, real comedians. One is a wannabe comedian. Uh, let's go through these characters. Dale is the veteran journeyman. Did you vision what that career trajectory would be? Did you, you pull from personal experience for that? I know a lot of people like Dale, and I, I, I could have been Dale very easily. Right. So Dale is basically a guy who's really good at his job. He really is a good stand-up stand -up comedian. But for one reason or another, um, things just didn't click. He just didn't get the breaks. And that happens to a lot of people who are really, really funny, really deserving of you know everything that showbiz has to offer. But 
you know, being good is one part of it and working hard is one part of it, but there's always that luck element. You, you need to catch a break. And um, so Dale is that guy who's like, you know, he's in his 40s now. He doesn't know. He's got a daughter going to college. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to afford to put her through college doing what he's doing. It's clearly not working out. And he's thinking about getting out of the business and taking a day job, which has been offered to him. So Dale sort of represents that um, that that person who's on the precipice of deciding, do I stop living my dream? Do I stop chasing the dream and come back to reality and accept that this isn't going to work out? Because that's a very difficult thing for people to do. Yeah. And then Rin, um, so Dale is from Chicago. Rin is uh, uh, from Ireland. She's over in North America and she's on the other side of the coin. She's She's much younger than Dale. She's been doing it for a while and she's very, very good and the industry knows it. And she has some attention and heat from Los Angeles management and production companies who are looking at her to possibly uh, host a network television show. So she's on the other side of the coin from Dale. She's potentially poised for very big things if she can just get through this tour and get back to where she needs to in order to uh, sort of audition for this. Yeah. And then and then the third act is a, a local kid out of Winnipeg who has a he doesn't have an accurate assessment of his abilities in terms of comedy. <laughs> and uh, every comedian has met that comedian. That yeah. is definitely somebody who's out there. Um you know the book does have as you said people who read it are like you you know you're peeling back the world of 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 stand-up comedy and there's some bad stuff there that people are going to realize about comedians but also the book has lessons and tips for what makes a good performance you really talk about Dale's uh, you showcase his mastery how he can sense the crowd manage the mood of the crowd move it you know in in his favor can you talk a little bit about how he does that you know, that's sort of representative of Dale being a veteran who's been around a long time and who's, who is good at what he does, but he's seasoned now. And he is able to read the room sort of immediately when you walk in, determine whether this is going to be hard or if it's going to be a good room. He, he's just got that, that veteran ability to tailor his show towards what the crowd needs on that night in this situation. And... Um, Rin, who's very naturally talented, comes to recognize that he's got a skill level that um, that she, you know she learns a bit from Dale because mm-hmm. she's she's naturally fast and naturally funny, but she sees in Dale, you know that that sort of blue collar work ethic, which you know which sh- she has to some degree because she's always you know anytime we we see them in their hotel rooms, Rin is always working on her act. That's something that I wanted to kind of. Put in that that you know she's put she's putting in the time she's putting in the effort. Mm. The stuff I loved reading the most was the dialogue with Dale and Rin. Um, as you said, Rin is learning from Dale, and Dale is just naturally funny. But they both have this great you know cracking each other up, quick quick witted um, dialogue. What was it like to write that? Yeah, just kind of I just let it f- flow, you know. And um, you know, I really overwrote when I was writing this book because I, I like to do that to sort of discover the story, you know, probably write four times more than is needed. So a lot of those dialogue moments were just me sort of going back and forth between the two characters, banging out stuff and and going through that process, finding little nuggets. 
and then sort of deleting the rest and saying, okay, this is what this conversation is about, and this is a funny line, and just, you know, picking the the best moments. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you know what it's like when you're on the road, especially if you're on the road with somebody that you click with. Um, you know, you're, you're on a long drive from, you know, uh, Calgary to Edmonton or something to do the next night, and you got some time to kill in the car, and you just you you're going to entertain each other, and you know the, some of the funniest lines I've ever heard in my life came from you know in the car on the way to the gig as opposed to on the show at the gig, you know. Oh yeah. And and they're often lines that would never really translate to stage. You couldn't maybe feather them into a stand-up act. They lived in that moment specifically in this cir- circumstance. And you gut yourself laughing, and it's just a moment in time that wouldn't have happened if you weren't sort of sequestered sequestered with this other like-minded misfit in the mm-hmm. middle of uh, Canada <laughs> on the highway. I've almost driven off the road a few times courtesy of exactly those type of moments. Um, the third character who we're, we're not giving enough <laughs> airtime to just yet, but, you know, Hobie Huge and 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 Hobby. Do you call him Hobie or Hobby? Hobie, yeah, Hobie. Hobie. I won't. I won't tell people why he's named Hobie Huge because that little chunk really describes so much about him. Why he why why he has that name? But he's the, he's the villain. He gets the top billing on the book cover, and he's this sort of hulking <laughs> character. And as you said, he he's um, he's not in tune with his ability to be funny. He thinks he is, and and the facts are are say, say differently. Um, what do you think makes him that? Like, what, 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 what creates a character like that? Somebody who gets on stage and doesn't really have the the best self assessment of their of their skills. Yeah, well, comedy attracts funny people, and it also attracts people who think they're funny. It's like Charlie Demers said because he read an early version of this book, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I like that just the way he put it, he said, this is a clever tribute to the craft of comedy and the eerie itches it's used to scratch. Because that is the case. You know, a lot of people come into comedy sort of for the wrong reason, and they're using comedy to scratch some psychological itch that they have. Hobie Huge, Huge is not Hobie's real name. That's his stage name. And I, I decided to call the book Huge when I realized that Huge represents three different things with the book. It represents the antagonist, Hobie Huge. It represents the sort of desire by comedians to make it big, to make it huge. That's the goal, right, is to get huge. And the third element of this is, you know, they're just driving across this huge, vast, open swath of nothingness. So they're... You know, Rin and Dale find themselves with this questionable individual, and there's nowhere to go. They're they're between Manitoba and Ontario, and it's nothing but open farmland and dense bush. There's there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to turn to, and you, you know, your only ally and your main enemy are both in the same van as you. <laughs> You described him as questionable. I mean, uh, that's a, a slight understatement. Things do take a dark, violent yeah. turn. There's, you know, for that first while, when you're on the when you're, they're on the road with him, his, his actions are are just questionable for the yes. first while. They're like, right. is there is there something not right about this guy? 
And when things do get uh, darker and, and, and violent, how, was that a tough thing to balance that with the, with the laughter in the book that you sort of get so used to, especially on the car rides? Um, not, not really. I wouldn't say it's difficult. It's, it, but, but it's sort of representative of how comedians have uh, an ability or maybe it's a curse. I don't know what it is. To continue to try to be funny in the worst of situations. Mm -hmm. You know, comedians often have, and I think people don't understand this, comedians, at least the ones with any sort of social sense, are constantly self-censoring, constantly editing. Because, you, you know, you can be at a funeral and at the most touching moment, your stupid brain can't shut up with trying to twist things to make them funny. And your brain is thinking of funny things about the the family who's suffering, mm. you know, at the loss of their loved one. And you just have to ignore your brain that is coming up with, um, you know, ter- terribly inappropriate jokes because that's what it does. But ho- hopefully you have the sense to filter that. Some Some people don't, of course. But when you get three comedians who are in a situation where they don't have to self-censor, some incredibly off-color things get said, and 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 you know, you, like you couldn't say them in the world to people. You just say them to each other because, you know, only another comedian under, understands that you don't mean what you're saying. This is a play on words, or or you're or you're saying this because in this particular context, the inappropriateness of it is the twist that makes it funny. But you don't actually believe the horrendous thing you're saying. It's all about the craft of the twist. And um, so because comedians are like that, I wanted to portray that even in the direst of situations, when things are at their most grim and most violent and most potentially deadly in this story, Dale and Rin are not above still saying something kind of glib or kind of funny, even though they're terrified or maybe because they're terrified. That's the way Mm -hmm. their mind processes things. The last thing I wanted to ask you, it occurred to me as I was reading the book, it really uh, highlights the fact that how many comedians are really at home hanging out with other comedians. You know, you just describe comedians as misfits, and sometimes you find your your tribe of people. You find the people who think like you and, and, and uh, approach uh, so many things in life the same way you do, for better or for worse. Obviously, Dale and Rin are examples of that. Is that still your experience to this day? You enjoy hanging out with comedians more? I know your wife's a very funny person, a comedic actor, and I know you have a number of friends in the business, but is that still your circle, comedians, as much as possible? I mean, it's it's different when when you're with comedians. You can be you can be very close to other people, and I am very close to other people in my life that that I share things with and spend a great deal of time with. But there's something about being with other stand-ups who, and I kind of touch on this in the book, Bob Newhart saying that, you know, as soon as you meet another stand-up, you know that you share about a thousand things with this person that nobody else will understand. Mm -hmm. And so that comes with a sort of an inherent closeness. And, And being with comedians, being with a group of comedians... It's sort of where I feel the most me, you know? Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. 
Certainly it does to me, and uh, it might to others, but if it doesn't, that's all right. That's uh, Comedy is certainly not for everybody. You had mentioned off the top of this interview, Brent, that you uh, you had one thing left on your list that you still had to complete in your list of sort of professional goals. Are you comfortable talking about what that is? Yeah, it's just to, to write a play that gets staged professionally by real professional theater people who know what they're doing. And I can just go sit in the back hmm. and watch the play unfold. Because I, I remember in high school, that was it was very intoxicating to sit in the back because I wasn't in the plays that I wrote. I, I was acting in other plays, but I wrote a, a play that was put on by other people. To sit in the back and hear your words being said by uh, you know, an actor on stage in front of people and getting a reaction from the crowd, that was very intoxicating. It's one of the things that that really drew me to writing for television too. Was just, you know, if you when you write a script and then you have these amazing actors. I got so blessed to work with these incredible actors on Corner Gas and and later Hiccups. To, you know, you you come up, you know, you come up with some, something, a scene at your kitchen table or in your bedroom when you're writing in the dark, you know, and then to see it brought to life by these talented actors and directors, it's it's very it's hard it's hard to beat that, and, mm. and so I love the idea of doing that in theater. Well, I mean, based on you know your own experiences in this world and and in the network of people you know, and your your gift of writing dialogue mm-hmm. and, and setting this as, as I as I see it in this book, I have no doubt that that play will be something we all enjoy someday soon. Oh, thank you. I, I hope that's the case. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. You can have all the connections in the world, um, or all any any kind of quote unquote clout, but if you don't write a good product, it's not going to get made, no matter what. So, well, this is a terrific product. I wish you all the best with it. Congrats, Brent. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ali. It was uh, great to talk to you. Brent Butt is the author of Huge. He was in our Vancouver studio. Hey, I'm Safari Anthony. I'm a pop singer-songwriter from Toronto, and currently I am reading Falling Back in Love with Being Human, Letters to Lost Souls by Kay Cheng Tom. So this book is really cool. It is about, you know, humanity and seeing all the turmoil in the world and trying to find a way to almost forgive all that turmoil so that you can move on with yourself and be at peace in your own being. A lot of it for me is very relatable. Like it's, you know, a lot of it's dealing with queer issues, trans issues. And this is stuff where, you know, I'm very heavy in that world. So to kind of hear someone else's perspective and almost feel like, you know, what I felt like I was kind of dealing with on my own is almost like this universal thing that we're all kind of feeling in this community. And I think that's what this book is really about is that there's a lack of community that's happening in our world right now where everything is just like so dark, everyone is very negative, there's a lot of violence. And this idea of community and sticking together and trying to help each other out, you know, we kind of were, we're kind of doing it during the pandemic. And then it's like, as soon as we got out of it, I was very hopeful as well that a lot of those things that we were learning during that time would stick. And it just feels like we just kind of fell back to old ways and so I've been recently just struggling to try and like find energy to do things that I love because 
everything just feels so heavy and it just feels like everything's doomsday and it's almost like what is the point of any of this stuff so i was drawn to this book because it kind of deals with that and not in a way of like trying to solve any problems but just saying like you know what we all personally have been through a lot of different things um and just trying to find ways to write and communicate to the people who have done you wrong or the situations that are kind of plaguing you to kind of like release that energy and almost reclaim your own inner peace that was the Toronto-based singer and producer Tafari Anthony. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Barreling Forward, Eva Crocker's 2017 debut collection of short stories, marked the arrival of a fresh new voice from Newfoundland. She followed that with a debut novel, All I Ask, about a young woman coming of age in Eva's home city of St. John's. In Eva's new novel, Back in the Land of the Living, she pulls focus on another city, Montreal. And it's the backdrop for a year in the life of Marcy, a young queer woman who moves to Montreal after a messy breakup in St. John's. And as she adjusts to her new city, she dates, lands some dubious jobs, and navigates the ups and downs of a difficult romance. Eva Crocker joined Ryan B. Patrick to talk about her new book, Back in the Land of the Living. Hello, Eva, and welcome back to the next chapter. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here, and thanks for this conversation. Um, let's talk, let's take a quick step back and talk about All I Ask, which was your debut novel, of course, and it was very much a story of St. John's where you grew up. And this new novel, Back in the Land of the Living, is kind of a love letter to the city of Montreal. So uh, now that you're in Montreal, what's your relationship to the city? So it's true that all I ask is very much about the place where I grew up and that I have this really intense connection with the culture and the physical landscape. Um, and it feels really different to write about a new place. But I also think you have this interesting, fresh perspective when you arrive in a new place that makes you kind of want to write everything down mm. and try to capture it on the page. A lot of what the book is about is the feeling of coming from a small place, um, particularly as a queer person, and moving to a bigger city where there's a lot more queer people um, and it's exciting and scary and very lonely at times. Um, and then this experience that may or may not be particular to Newfoundland of feeling like you have to leave and see what's outside, but also kind of longing for home a lot of the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you mentioned her identity. Um, she's queer. She identifies as queer. And she travels. Uh, we travel along with Marcy as we she gets to know Montreal and make a, n a home for herself there. So what what takes her to Montreal in the first place? It's a good question question. Um, so on the surface, it's kind of uh, a coming of age story in a lot of ways. And so on the surface, the sort of inciting incident is all this drama that she's cooked up for herself in St. John's and she feels like she just has to get out of there. Mm. Um, but I think it is really about that wanting to see the world 
uh, she's visited Montreal as a kid and sort of experienced how different it is as a city um, and and is excited to see all the kind of new things that feel very big city to her. Although I know for people in other parts of Canada, Montreal is actually a relatively small city. It doesn't right. feel that way to me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, back home, Marcy lived with her girlfriend in St. John's, but it kind of got claustrophobic kind of got awkward. At one point, she comments that there's a certain number of queer people in St. John's and they all know each other. So what, what, what is she hoping for by moving to Montreal? I mean, that may be the case in Montreal, too, to a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, a, a fresh beginning and discover new things, um, different opportunities Newfoundland is also, you know, in this very bleak kind of moment uh, when she leaves where we've had the collapse of the oil industry. There's the Mustrat Falls hydroelectric dam, which is tragically failing. Um, And there's so much to love about it, but it also feels really difficult to imagine a future there. Mm -hmm. So back in St. John's, Marcy worked at a bar. Uh, She had a uh, that bar had a close group of mostly straight people, and she was pretty much part of that crew, that, that little gang. What, what, how did that kind of intimacy and acceptance, what did that mean for her and her relationship with her, her own live-in girlfriend at the time? I think part of what I was trying to explore there is that Marcy is someone who can easily pass as straight and move through that world in a way that maybe her partner cannot um, and that there's an imbalance there that she's uh, she kind of realizes in the aftermath that that world is a lot easier for her because she's able to pass as a straight person. And so she can enjoy it, even if she feels um, not fully herself in that context. Mm-hmm. I found that aspect of the book fascinating, Eva, because um, as a racialized person myself, you do have that kind of code switching where you're trying to fit into certain spaces and uh, you're trying to uh, assert yourself while still trying to fit in. Um, what is Marcy essentially going through at that time? I think that she's a young person and she's in this relationship with somebody she really cares for. Although, as you said, it feels claustrophobic and the city feels claustrophobic to her at that time. Um, She feels like really eager to leave, but also that it's hard to do so, partly because you have to make enough money to leave, Mm -hmm. but also because she feels attached to the place and it's and it's scary to go somewhere new. Um, So it's kind of like trying to find the drive in herself to leave is what's motivating her a little bit and to uh, make sure she's not faking herself out right. about being able to do it. Yeah. So she's now in Montreal. Uh, there's a new stuff to encounter, new people to encounter. There's a bigger dating pool in Montreal. So she gets there, she starts online dating and she meets a woman, Leanne, who essentially captivates her, but is also controlling. She controls Marcy. What, what, how mm-hmm. does this dynamic play out? I think it's, uh, I, I tried to capture the kind of nuance that there can be in those situations where um, being controlled is a horrible feeling, um, but also there can be, when you're feeling lost and unsure of yourself, a, a sort of momentary comfort in somebody else taking the reins. Um, and it's it's a very complicated uh, fine line, uh, and you can lose yourself in mm. that dynamic 
Um, and that's sort of what Marcy is uh, experiencing and, and beginning to recognize is going on um, in this relationship. Yeah, and she is losing herself. Like Marcy says, <clears throat> falling in love with Leanne is like running into an icy ocean, painful and about proving yourself to the people on shore. Why does she have to prove it to anyone? I think because she's kind of new to the city and she doesn't know a lot of people Yet she's also sort of clinging to Leanne, relying on her for this social network and for um, help, Leanne's helping her find work. Um, and there's all these ways where she feels like her life there is very precarious and that uh, Leanne is this key figure. And then also I think she really wants to believe that she's in love. Right. Um, and so she's she's throwing herself into it um, and thinking that it's just about being really deeply in it and kind of accepting the push and pull of the tides uh, of the relationship. Yeah. So she has she misses back home. She misses back east and she has bouts of homesickness. And it's also it's often about recalling the brine of the ocean air or walking around the battery at night. Do you see her as someone that will eventually return back home to Newfoundland? That's a good question. Um, I think probably, maybe, I, I haven't thought about her <laughs> her future. I mean, partially the book is also about this, like, you know, growing up at this moment where there's all this precarity in terms of not a lot of long-term stable employment, yeah. the climate crisis, um, there starts to be the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so there is all this uncertainty about the future in general, and she's kind of just trying to find her footing in the present moment. Yeah, so she's kind of emblematic of a lot of people of her generation in terms of scrambling to get by, like cash jobs and questionable questionable gigs, that whole gig economy, economy kind of thing. Can you tell us mm-hmm. uh, about the, some of the, the jobs that she's doing right now? Uh, yeah, so she works all these kind of odd jobs that she finds through friends and through Facebook groups. Um, many of them are under the table. Um, one is that she goes to this person's apartment and she's reading these kind of garbled phrases from uh, that seem to be pulled from comment sections on the Internet um, <laughs> for a really long time, just sitting in this tiny apartment reading these sentences uh, into an iPhone. And she doesn't really have any idea why, um, although she speculates later with some other people that maybe it's about training AI. Um, <laughs> and she also does some medical testing, stays overnight in this facility after taking um, a new medication um, where there's all these interesting, maybe sort of disturbing restrictions on um, like using the washroom or how long you sleep or how much you eat, um, all those kind of things that are a part of that procedure. So what I love about your your books in general, just the way you write and then your way in to the narrative, particularly with this book, you're very good at describing the texture and development of these relationships in terms of how they unfold and, and, and how the reader can kind of see things before Marcy does. Like you kind of place us right into Marcy's life, but you kind of pull back and give the reader enough lens to kind of draw their own conclusions. What's your approach to writing in terms of perspective and what have you? Well, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I Yeah, I think that I often begin with like an image or a piece of dialogue um, and I am interested in 
feeling very in the present in the narrative and that maybe the character hasn't had enough time to fully process what it might mean. Um, and also, I feel like writing is best when there's some ambiguity and the reader has an opportunity to kind of like work a little bit and bring their own conclusion or understanding to it. People don't want to be force-fed a, a really cohesive message, you know? They, right. It's... I think the exciting thing about fiction is that we can kind of wade into more nuanced gray areas and try to pick apart what's going on there in a way that uh, you you is maybe more difficult in nonfiction. Yeah. So you yourself obviously come from a writing family. Um, Lisa Moore is your mom. How did that shape or inform your approach to writing? Um. I, I feel like it's hard to answer that question because I can't imagine any other life than the one I've had. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> um, but I, I love my mom um, and both my parents are huge readers and writers. And that was always a part of my life growing up. Um, I actually I have dyslexia, so I struggled a lot with learning to read right. um, and I feel grateful that there was a lot of support in my life for for overcoming that and uh, engaging with stories in an oral way for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the the last part of this novel takes place during COVID. This is a, uh, essentially a pandemic novel. Uh, wh- what does uh, living in COVID mean for Marcy and her relationships? Um. I feel, uh, I think that it's just that the book, to a certain degree, is about that uh, push and pull of feeling isolated and feeling connected and finding your people, um, and that COVID kind of intensifies that conflict for her of solidifying who who are her people in this new place. Um, what does home feel like in that moment where that became very important for everyone to explore? Um and it is it is just the little last chunk. <laughs> so I don't know if I would I I'm hesitant to call it a pandemic novel. Um, but I also began it writing it in 2019 and was writing about that kind of moment. And I felt like it would be strange in some way to not include it, to, to stop before it uh, felt like it was making some kind of statement that I don't think I was trying to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for this conversation. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. Eva Crocker is the author of Back in the Land of the Living. She spoke with Ryan B. Patrick from Montreal. This past spring, Dimitri Nasrallah's novel Hotline was a contender on CBC's great book debate known as Canada Reads. I hope you tune in. Our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, talked with him back then about Hotline, and Dimitri came back this summer to talk about two graphic memoirs that introduced him to a world he hadn't known before. Dimitri is an award-winning novelist, editor, and translator, and here he is now in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick. Hello, Dimitri, and welcome to the next chapter. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me again. So I hear you have two graphic novels you want to talk about. Let's talk about the first one. Well, the first one is uh, one that should be familiar to all your listeners. It was uh, the book that actually won Canada Reads this year, Ducks by Kate Beaton. And uh, like many people, I, I, I discovered this book because 
really got into it because of Canada Reads, I should say. I, as a Montrealer, I tend to be aware of many things drawn in quarterly because they are like some of our hometown heroes over here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just swept up in uh, the vividness of the storytelling, how the, the graphic novel format fused with the memoir was able to, to open up aspects of, uh, of Kate's life and imagination uh, that probably wouldn't uh, have been as transcendental. Uh, had they been uh, just written out in uh, traditional memoir forms. Yeah, this is an interesting choice because obviously Ducks was a contender in Canada Reads alongside your own book. Um, And it was dissected a lot on Canada Reads. What was your personal experience reading this book? Well, as someone who tends to write from a more political perspective myself, I'm always attracted to the politics or the economics of books. And I think a lot of the conversation... Uh, that came out about ducks during Canada Reads had to do with generational divides, these divides across the country, as well as sexual assault and trauma, uh, which are very uh, significant aspects of the book. But another part of the book that maybe didn't get as much attention was this idea of how uh, economics uh, figures into who we are as people and the the kinds of arrangements we enter into ethically with ourselves in the name of survival. In Duck's Kate is really in the middle of this ethical dilemma. How does she fuse the need to pay off her student loans with working at the oil sands? And she comes to the conclusion that if she's only there as long as she needs to be, maybe she won't have to really uh, think about that aspect too hard. Now, we all know that was a tragic flaw that led to the real costs of being there. But uh, that economic aspect of the oil sands and how they function in Canada, I hadn't really quite seen that at play in that many creative works up until that point. And I thought it was very well handled. And it's it's something worth preserving as part of our literature, because I think the oil sands are going to be ephemeral and uh, so it, it's it's nice to have this this book to commemorate uh, this generation of people who who had to make this arrangement. So obviously, Ducks was the first graphic novels to win Canada Reads, and it was on Barack Obama's 2022 book list, and it was on many other notable book lists that year. Do you think it's helped bring the graphic novel as a genre to a wider Canadian audience? Oh, I definitely think so. I uh, remember reading a lot of the comments uh, surrounding Canada Reads for my own vested interest, full disclosure. (laughs) Uh, And it it seemed to me that a lot of people uh, were contending with this format for the very first time. And they were, you you could see people in real time uh, getting used to this idea of having pictures tell the story and not having, having a different kind of depth come out of those, uh, of that, uh, that approach than you would in a traditionally written a memoir. Now, now, being based here in Quebec, I mean, we have a closer affinity to to France, where they have a, a long tradition of uh, la, la bande dessinée, mm. uh, the, this format that the, the graphic novel, as we know it here, is based upon. And there it goes quite deep. So we're quite used to having that uh, approach to the graphic novel here. But I think for a lot of English Canadians, this may have been the first really serious work uh, of uh, graphic uh, memoir Uh, novelization that they may have read outside of maybe, say, Mouse or Persepolis or one of these big historical memoirs that have been, uh, you know, turned into movies or won Pulitzer Prizes. So I have to ask you, Dimitri, so was there an element of this book one, I need to read it and see what it's all about? Was there an element of that when you were reading this? (laughs) Well, actually, it was... uh, 
the only book that I actually read before mm. uh, the Canada Reads uh, week uh, took place. I am, apart from being a writer, a uh, full-time uh, teacher in creative writing, as well as a fiction editor at Vehicle Press. So m- most of my free time ends up being taken up by manuscripts. So by the time I get to relaxing, I don't really feel like picking up another novel. Because that's my daily bread. So I tend to go to one of two ways. I'll go for these uh, graphic novels because they're easy on the eyes, the pages move quick, and they feel like entertainment to me. I actually prefer them to television. Uh, or I'll go for music biography. So both of those are kind of my eye candy. Fair enough, fair enough. So what's your next title, Dimitri? Well, I thought that people who uh, enjoyed Ducks could... Uh, uh, do a lot worse than going to Take the Long Way Home by John Clater next, another yeah. maritime writer, another book published on a, a quite esteemed Canadian indie press. Uh, this time is Conundrum Press, which used to be based in Montreal, but is now is based out east. Another graphic memoir of a certain point in the writer's life that uses the Canadian landscape to, to tell its story. And that way it's a quote-unquote Canadian novelization uh, in that uh, it, it really is a story of the, the tapestry of uh, the Canadian experience that you know we see when people drive across the country or go from one region to the other. Mm-hmm. Right. So tell me a little bit about John. What, what do you know about him? Well, I I met John in the most Canadian way possible at a literary festival out east in Moncton, the Fry Festival. Now, he doesn't live too far from there. John is 47 years old. At least he was at the time of writing uh, this book. So he's in his late 40s, early 50s. And the main thing to note about him and is that he's a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is something that's no secret. Every day is a struggle for someone who's recovering from a major addiction, especially one that's uh, been a lifelong affliction, and he's doing that hard work. And part of writing this story, part of what parallels this journey from the East Coast all the way to Prince Rupert, where he's going for an artist's residency, is this ability to to deal with these weaknesses that come up along the way and to make amends with family members he has who he's 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 wronged a few people in his life and he's at different stages of making up with these people of of seeking forgiveness so that leaves him quite vulnerable on this trip uh he finds himself going to quite a few meetings on the fly talking about a and a meetings mm-hmm. uh, of course so it it really is a struggle through vulnerability and the fortitude that a person needs to just exist on a daily basis when they have this kind of history that can really claw you back in at any moment. So how do the themes of this book take a long way home compared to Ducks? Well, Ducks is very much the story of a uh, person in their 20s really starting out in life. But John is a full two and a half decades uh, ahead of Kate by the the writing of this story. And so we're no longer seeing a life of possibilities so much as a life that has been limited Mm -hmm. uh, along the way. And so one that has its fair share of regrets already built in. And John Clater is not someone who in this story is looking ahead to the vast potentials of life. He is uh, someone who is has realized what really matters. The book actually starts off with a meeting with his mother, 
And uh, she informs him that he has uh, a brother that he never knew about, a half-brother that she had before he was born. And so part of this journey out to the West Coast is to be able to locate uh, this family member that he didn't know uh, anything about previously. So family mm-hmm. is a really strong, cohesive bond for John Clater and really the thing that, that's keeping him on track in his recovery. Right. So we're talking about graphic novels, whether it be Ducks or Take the Long Way Home. Obviously, a big part of that storytelling is visual. Like, How do you compare the art and the illustration between the, the two books? What are they like? The art is really part of the fingerprint of a graphic novelist, how they, they uh, contend with the lines, what they do with an actual page. Kate Beaton is way more structured in her artwork. Her boxes are quite clean. Her uh, images have a, a strong sense of perspective and uh, there is shading being used even though the book is mostly in a, a grayscale. John Clater is a lot more chaotic. Half the drawings feel like they've been drawn on a bar napkin uh, <laughs> as he tries to explain the story to you. And he, he'll usually have only one or two images per page. There isn't as deep a perspective going on in the images, but there's an impressionistic emotional aspect that emerges from the way he draws chaotically that you maybe don't see in Kate's work. So there's a lot more emotions being worn on the sleeve in terms of how the drawings are rendered with John Clater. Talking about Ducks by Kate Beaton and Take the Long Way Home by John Clater. Why are these two books perfect reads? Well, because I think a lot of people end up driving across this country first and foremost. So it's, it's especially with uh, how expensive things are getting. You, a lot of people do opt for that road trip. So that's always a nice thing to, to bring along, to, to take a road trip uh, in book form with you uh, along the way. But I think a lot of people also take time to kind of pause and reflect. Right. And both of these books are about pauses in their respective authors' lives, stepping outside their their norms, and they're using that moment to kind of uh, look at themselves, to evaluate. John Clater's uh, situation is uh, obviously a little more relaxing than Kate Beaton's uh, situation with the oil sand. He's really just counting the miles as he as he goes along and between encounters. But they're both quick reads; they're not heavy in terms of uh, the work that the reader has to bring to them in order to absorb the story. And the beautiful thing about the graphic memoir is, A, the images kind of just wash onto us, which is really nice. I mean, there's a passivity to the form that I I quite enjoy. Secondly, they tend to be quite uh, open about their emotions in a way that's uh, really like like talking to a neighbor across your fence or just a meal with a friend, let's say. So uh, there's that affinity you feel with the authors and how honest they're being with you. And that's, that's kind of refreshing. All right. Dimitri, it's always good to talk to you. And thanks for these recommendations. Oh, you're welcome. I hope you enjoy. That was Dimitri Nasrallah talking with Ryan B. Patrick about the graphic memoirs Ducks by Kate Beaton and Take the Long Way Home by John Clater. That is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. And thanks this week to Olivia Pasquarelli, Laura Antonelli, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, the cousins Mariko and Jillian Tamaki on collaborating on their new graphic novel, Roaming. It's the story of two young women on a first trip to New York, and the cousins consider it their love letter to that city. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.